Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. And man, thank you, Kenny and Sarah and worship team. That was, that was just beautiful. So thank you guys for leading, leading us in worship. Um, I'm really excited to be here. For those of you who don't know me, I am Kyle Cox. Um, and there are two, a little bit about me, there are two exciting things that one has happened this year and one that is going to happen. The first being I got married in January. This is, thank you, thank you. This is my wife, Chamilla Panilla, uh, now Chamilla Cox, which is, you know, unfortunate that she went from Chamilla Panilla to Chamilla Cox. Um, and last time I was here, I asked some of you to talk to her about it, and uh, we failed. So, uh, but that's okay. Here we are now. Um, the second exciting thing for us is that we will be leaving to go overseas through crew to Greece on September 9th. And so we're really excited for that. We're in the support raising process. Um, that also means these are my last two months at Grace Bible Church. So it's a really exciting, emotional, just all the emotions this, uh, this year. Um, so I am here this morning because Matt Morton and Ryan Pale, they are both in Greece. They've taken a group of people from Creekside and uh, a couple from other campuses to go minister to refugees in Athens. And so before we get into our message, we want to just take a moment and pray for them along with praying for our time. And uh, if you just think about them throughout the week, um, try and lift up prayers on their behalf. So let's go about, let's go do that now. Lord, we, uh, we praise you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. God, thank you for being a God who redeems us. Thank you for being a God who loves us, who's kind, who's gracious. And so, Lord, in light of that truth, we pray this morning as we look at Psalm 51 and we see the weight of our sin, that we would know full well that you are a God who is gracious and quick to forgive. Lord, we lift up the team in Greece right now, Father. God, we pray that you would give them wisdom as they speak and minister to refugees in Athens. Lord, we pray that you would prepare hearts right now who will hear your gospel, and we pray people will come to know you. And what's more, Lord, we pray the momentum of this team as they're overseas right now in Greece, as they come back, that, they, that momentum would continue. And what they have learned and the passion uh, for evangelism and making your name known would just carry on through College Station. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So when I was in the seventh grade, I was in the Shakespearean play, Romeo and Juliet. And uh, why seventh graders were playing Romeo and Juliet, I don't know. My brother and I, I'm a twin, he and I both, they thought it would be best to give us both the part of Romeo. And so I had the first half as the lovesick Romeo, and Tyler had the second half as the awesome fighter, cool Romeo. And I wish I had a picture of us because we look so goofy in our costume. Oh, wait, there we are. That's little Romeo over there. And I remember as this little Romeo, I liked a girl who was coincidentally playing the part of Juliet. Fortunately, this girl also liked the guy playing Romeo. Unfortunately, it was my brother's part of Romeo. 
And so I did what any seventh grade, love-struck seventh grader would do. I thought, I will destroy my brother's reputation. Uh, and that would probably solve the problem. So what I did is, I, you know, I, did, I was not smart and manipulative at this time. That came later. Um, and I decided to take all the props from the play and uh, put them in various toilets around the school and flush the toilets to where they would overflow the bathrooms. And I left pieces of my brother's belongings in these particular places. Um, and so what had happened is the next day, I was naturally called into the principal's office. And uh, they asked me point blank, did you do this? And I crossed my arms and said, I did not. I think the evidence points to my brother. And uh, little did, they, did I know that they actually had a video recording of me doing this, to which my response was, we're twins. So that's obviously my brother. Um, and they didn't buy it. And I still, not till this day, today's the day I'm admitting it, but up until this day, denied it. Um, if I could go back, maybe I would, you know, tell the truth, probably not. Um, but the reality is, I still did not deal with owning up to this situation. I did not confess to what I've done. I had made uh, justifications for what I'd done in the name of love. Um, and so, why do I say that? I say that because this morning, we're about to look at a written confession by the man of David. And this is a confession done well. We're in Psalm 51 this morning. Oops, excuse me. We're in Psalm 51 this morning. And uh, uh, this psalm is one of the most encouraging, humbling, and convicting scriptures in the entire Bible. Charles Spurgeon says of this song, let's see. There we go. Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm, Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. But commenting on, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush at its defeat? In other words, reading this psalm humbles us. This song brings us to humiliation. And so as we walk through this psalm, I first want us to understand the context of this confession. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And we don't have time to read that, so I'm just going to summarize it really quickly. Um, But verse 1 of chapter 11 starts off by saying, um, In the spring when all of the kings were out to war, David sent his men to fight and stayed in Jerusalem. And so already what David is doing is he is isolating himself. He should be in the battle, but he's not. He's in isolation. And as the verse continues, he says, He arose in the evening from his sleep. In other words, he went to bed, slept all night, slept all day, and thought, well, I haven't seen sunlight today, so I guess I'll go do that. And as he was walking, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And this is an opportunity for him to make a choice. He can either keep walking or stop and stare. And in this moment, David forgot about the God who saved him from Goliath. David forgot about the God who saved him from Saul. David's integrity was challenged, and he plunged into sin. Now, you might think, okay, it's only a glance. It's only a glance. But then David's curiosity started to rise. He started asking questions. Who is this woman? And a guy answers, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife to Uriah. 
And so at this point, you can imagine the conflict that's going in David's mind, thinking, okay, it's a married woman. You can't, this is wrong. Married woman. Ah, but I really want this. And David's king, so he gets whatever he wants. So what happens is David sleeps with her. And so after this, you can again imagine the conflict. He's thinking, okay, it was just one time. I'm not going to do it again. It's done. It's over. But oh, snap, she's pregnant. And so now David has to manipulate this situation. And so what he does is he calls Uriah off the battlefield, and he tells Uriah to stay the night with his wife. But Uriah was a humble and respected man. And so Uriah did not feel he could enjoy his wife in that way while his brothers were dying on the battlefield. So he went back to war. So now David is in quite a pickle. So David has to manipulate the situation even further. And what he does is he second-handedly kills Uriah by placing him on the front lines of battle. And at the end of this chapter, it says, What David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. The man after God's own heart, what he had done was evil. And it all started with just one stare. So at this point, David has committed adultery, he has committed murder, and he has manipulated the situation to get him in the clear. So in chapter 12 enters the prophet Nathan. And Nathan in the Hebrew actually means a gift from God. And a gift he is indeed. He starts to talk to David, and he tells David of a story of a rich man who had many flocks of sheep and a poor man who had an itty-bitty-itty lamb. And this poor man raises this itty-bitty lamb, and this lamb is a part of this poor man's family. He loves this lamb. And now the story really connects with David, because David was a shepherd. He kind of had a weird love for sheep. So David is in this story. And what happens is David, or what happens is Nathan tells David that this rich man took this wee little lamb from this poor man, even though the rich man had everything. And David's response here is, well, let's kill the guy. Let's kill him. He doesn't deserve to live. And Nathan responds with one of the biggest spiritual slaps in all of scripture. And he says, David, you are that man. And David, in that moment, is found out. He weeps, he confesses his sin before God, and in response, he writes this psalm. So let's read Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned, and have done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast love. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And we're going to stop there for right now. So in light of this confession, there are four truths that I want to identify and elaborate. And the first truth is this, that all sin is serious. 
sin in Scripture, the actual literal trans- translation means to miss the mark. So in other words, God has a standard by which we must live, and sin, because of sin, we do not reach that standard. And it's true that some sin have greater earthly consequences than other, right? There is a greater consequence for murder than there is for lying. However, both fall short from the standard by which God would have us live. If I could illustrate this further, think about speeding. If you're speeding 60 miles over the speed limit, chances are you're going to hurt someone. If you're speeding 5 miles over the speed limit, you may not hurt someone, but nevertheless, both are breaking the law, technically speaking. And unfortunately, what this means for humanity is that even though some may not murder, everyone sins. Everyone does not reach the standard, even though maybe some have sinned here, some have sinned here. We have not reached the standard. And scripture says because of this, the wages of this sin is death. And so David, he uses different terminology to describe his sin. In verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me away from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you alone I have sinned, and I've done what is evil. Verse 5, I have been brought forth from iniquity. So look at this, sin, iniquity, transgression, evil, All these words combine together to show the seriousness of what David had done. Transgression means to rebel against one's law. So sin ultimately defies God. All sin defies God. In this passage, in verse 4, David says, You and you alone I have sinned. Now, obviously, David had sinned against Bathsheba. Obviously, he had sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, the greatest consequence of his sin is that it ultimately defied God. The primary problem with our sin is it is offensive to God. It is offensive to God. Not only is sin offensive, but it is comprehensive. He says this, in sin my mother conceived me. I've been a sinner since I was an embryo. I was born with a heart that is prone to sin. And I think to think of my nephew and niece, they're, uh, oh my, that was crazy. So this is my niece, Lexi. She's, uh, you know, she's really cute, and this is all three of them. Um, but here, uh, here are two babies crying. That's actually me and my brother, by the way. Um, I was told we're crying because we didn't get what we wanted, because deep down, I know as a little two-year-old, I want what I want, and if I don't get what I want, I will throw a fit because I did not get what I wanted, right? And so we know we all are born into a pr- to prone to selfishness. We are all born with a nature that defies God. Not only is sin offensive, not only is it comprehensive, but it is also pervasive. Verse 3, my sin is always before me. It is with me all the time. Even in my best deeds, on my best days, When I am doing what would seem to be noble, I am prone to do these things for selfish reasons. My Christ-like actions, I can harbor some of the most prideful thoughts. Um, A good example of this was this weekend uh, when I met Kenny, who just led worship for us. As we were talking to one another, um, one of the things I had to tell him was, you have to pray for me this Sunday, that I do not harbor thoughts and, and a desire to be made known, but a desire ultimately to 
teach scripture for the purpose of making Jesus known because I know I'm prone to want to look good. And so I had to confess that to Kenny and I told him, pray for me this weekend because in my Christ-like actions, I can harbor some of those prideful and selfish thoughts. I am a sinner through and through. And what's crazy is sin can start so subtly. For David, it just started with a walk outside, just a glance across the roof. It started with just a glance. And then just one lustful look led to adultery, which led to murder. And if you read the text forward, it led to the death of a child. Just because of one sin that maybe we would deem small, destruction was inevitable. Pain was inevitable. Sin takes arms so slowly and so subtly, but it devastates so painfully. We can conceal sin that we think is small. We can hide it, but it will always end in pain. Even if it's never found out. Even if no one knows what we have done, no one knows the thoughts that we think, the reason it will always bring us pain, the reason sin is destructive, because it ultimately defies the one by which we were made to love. It ultimately defies he who can only give us joy. And so if we sin against the only one who can give us joy, the only one we are made to love, that will bring us pain, that will bring us destruction, it will bring us devastation. What we perceive as small is infinitely serious to God, and it is destructive. C.S. Lewis illustrates this really well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own sin less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you are awake, not while you are sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you are drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. I think we understand our own sin and for what it is when we understand the disconnect it causes with us and the Father. As we continue to sin, as we continue to see small sin as not destructive, what happens is suddenly black and white turn to gray. And suddenly we start to slowly lose that joy that we once had. Because insignificant or small sin, that we would call insignificant or small, always ends up getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But we don't realize it. And that's why sin is so destructive, destructive and so deceiving. Future devastation can be caused by one look. It can be caused by one glance, one thought. David's sin carried, <clears throat> excuse me, the sin of David's carried past David, well past David. And to finish this first truth, um, think about Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God by eating an apple. Um, or I guess it was a fruit. If eating an apple is a sin, we're all, <laughs> we're all toast. Um, think about when they ate the fruit. God said, don't eat a fruit 
and they ate it. And because of that sin that maybe we would deem small, we now have the condemnation of mankind. War, trafficking, pain, death, murder, all because of one sin. Moses struck a rock and he couldn't enter the promised land. Abraham lied to Pharaoh and it ended in pain. Cain was jealous of Abel and it ended in murder. Ananias and Sapphira told a lie and they were killed. So why do we treat sin so lightly? Just a thought there, a word there, an action there, selfishness, pride, lust. Why do we treat it so lightly when it was so infinitely destructive? Now, I think we need to feel the weight of this truth. I think it's important of us, excuse me, important for us to understand the weight of sin so that we can understand, despite our defiance against God, that God is gracious. It's important for us to understand the truth of number one, so we can understand the great, incredible wonder and incredible relief of truth number two, that God is gracious. So right here, David, he uses different words to characterize God's grace. He says, have mercy. Your steadfast love abounds. Your abundant mercy abounds. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me So David, as he's asking for God's grace, he knows he has no basis to come before God with this request. There is nothing in himself that he can appeal to. David has committed two sins that by the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, required death. And so there is no basis for David to come before God. There's no appeal that he has. So what is David appealing to? He is appealing to God's grace. And so when he asks God, he is asking God to basically unsin him, which I know isn't a word, but I'm going to say it again. He is asking God to unsin him, to completely make him clean. And there is no appeal within himself. The only appeal he has is, God, you're gracious. And even though I defied you, act as if I never defied you. And that is a bold request. And how is that made possible? Well, the language that David is using throughout this psalm is cleansing and purifying. And it's found in verse 7. David, he says, purify me with hyssop. I remember reading that, and I didn't pay too much attention to it. I thought, eh, you know, I don't know what hyssop is, so I'm going to continue on, which you should never do with scripture. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eventually look up what hyssop was, because I didn't know what hyssop was. And as I looked it up, I thought, oh my gosh, hyssop is awesome. I should have had hyssop at my wedding. Hyssop is amazing. And what hyssop was, is in the Old Testament, when you sinned or when you were unclean, you would go to a priest to become clean. And the priest would use this plant, hyssop, to sprinkle or spread blood on an offering to atone for our sin. Or to atone for the people in the Old Testament sin. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, they used hyssop to spread the blood on the door so that the angel of death would pass through. Hyssop is an object, a plant used in cleansing ceremonies. And so when David is saying, purify me with hyssop, he is saying, I need myself completely cleansed. And what will cleanse me is nothing within myself. It comes at a cost of a sacrifice. You see, cleansing is costly. And so what is David appealing to? 
He is appealing to something or someone other than himself, taking the penalty of his sin and satisfying the wrath of God. Now, here's the good news for us. God's grace came in the life of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life as fully God, as fully man, who died on a cross and his blood poured out, taking on the penalty of our sin, taking on the wrath of God, so that his death satisfied the wrath of God. What's more is sin leads to death, and when Jesus died, that essentially means sin had won. However, Jesus rose from the grave three days later, effectively conquering sin once and for all. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So you see, the penalty of our sin was paid by Jesus on the cross and the shedding of his blood as the perfect sacrifice to take away our sin. This is good news. This is why we worshiped this morning. It's because Jesus has made a way for us to appeal to God's grace, but not appeal based on what we can do, but on what Jesus has done. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no good work that we can appeal to for grace. It is only through Jesus. This is the wonder of God's grace. And this is exclusively through Jesus. There is no other way to be made right before God. But when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we are made clean, we are made righteous, we are justified in the sight of God because he has placed all his wrath on his Son. And his son was the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins once and for all. So we have no need of hyssop or sacrifices because Jesus has taken the place of that. Someone has taken the penalty for our sin. God is gracious. He is kind. He is forgiving. And my hope this morning is if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, that you would come to know him. Truth number three, confession is key. So right here, David, he is being completely transparent before God. He is being blatantly, bluntly, transparently honest before God. He's not trying to cover himself up. He's not trying to look at other circumstances or other situations and saying, yeah, but this happened. He is saying, God, I am a sinner through and through. I confess that I have completely sinned against you. And in verses 16 and 17, David says, you would not delight in sacrifices. And now David, he's not demeaning the sacrificial system. He knows it's important, but he recognizes that sacrifice is an outward ritual that reflects an inward reality. So David knows in light of his sin, he can't offer up a burnt offering. He knows that something has to happen deep within his heart. And I think the implication for us is this, that many of us can come in here with sin that are secret sins. We conceal it. We worship. We listen to a sermon. And then we walk away unchanged. And my hope this morning is that we don't do that. My hope this morning is that we, in light of Psalm 51, confess honestly and bluntly and transparently before God. That we don't just partake and religious ceremonies without bypassing the brokenness in our hearts. 
what David did, excuse me, sorry. The path of grace is paved with honesty before God. Confession is always wrapped in humility. So what does confession take? It takes us to humble ourselves and say, hey, I, I can't do it. There's no good I can do to fix what I have done. I confess that I need you. The more I try to fix myself, the more hopeless and helpless I realize I am. So God, it's by your grace, not my ability, not my ability to forgive my sin. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us. You see, this is the greatest news. That when we confess our sin, we confess with all confidence, knowing he forgives us. Knowing that he is faithful to forgive us. And so my hope is that we treat God, excuse me, is that we don't treat God like a person who we, you know, we can confess something but hide our sin. We don't really say it all. No, that we confess freely and openly and transparently, knowing confidently that he will forgive Knowing that because of Jesus, we are made right. We are made clean. What's more is confession is freeing. There is freedom in confession. Think about us being honest today to look deeply in ourselves and recognize a real heart issue. It is freeing to confess our sin. And I'm not... I, I think it's very freeing to confess to the Lord, obviously. He is the one we, we must confess to. But I think it's also freeing to confess to someone you know and you trust. To look someone in the eye and say, not only am I jealous of this person, but what's more is I want this person to fail. And I want to be elevated above them. Not only do I struggle with pornography, but what's more is I don't feel bad for it. To really Honestly, confess sin for what it is and get to the root of sin. It is freeing. There is a weight lifted from us. And I just think, what if the body of Christ did this? What if the body of Christ freely and transparently humbled ourselves and confessed our sin? The conflicts in the church that would resolve, the abuse that would cease, Man, the graciousness that we would see in the body of Christ, the frustrations and anxiety that would just stop if we just said, enough, here is me, Lord, transparently change me from the inner core. To conceal our sin is not freeing, it's, it's slavery. That's being a slave to it. But man, confession is freeing. And where there's confession, there is freedom, there is relief, And the last truth, there is redemption. Restoration is the result. So in verse 10, David, he says, create in me a new heart. You see, David, he doesn't want just a band-aid to cover him sin. He wants to be completely created new. And this word create in verse 10 is the same word in the Hebrew that is used in Genesis chapter 1. When God creates the world, he creates something new, something out of nothing. That is what David is asking. He's saying, I want you to completely recreate me. It's not that I want to fight sin harder. It's I don't want to struggle with sin at all. I don't even even want to desire sin, Lord. So recreate me. Create in me a new heart. He goes on to say, restore to me the joy of our salvation. 
that if something only God can do is restore our joy. You see, when we sin and we defy God, we hinder our fellowship with God. And the biggest pain of that is that it cuts off our joy because we defied the one we were made to have satisfaction and joy in. However, in confession, in honesty, in humility before God, he is quick to forgive and he is just and quick to restore. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1, 7, he says, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Concealment is the pathway to misery, but confession is the pathway to joy. He reestablishes our joy. God is a gracious God who not only forgives us, but he makes us new and he reestablishes the joy that we once had with him. And let me tell you, there is a day in the future when there will be no sin. We will be living in the kingdom of God where there is no sin, there is no consequence of sin, there is no pain, there is no deception, no manipulation, no lust, no conflicts amongst one another. And so the hope is this, is that we as a church would represent that future kingdom. That we would represent that which will one day be a reality. And the best way to do that is by continuing to be made new, continuing to be made more like Jesus. The best way to represent the future kingdom is to represent the king. And so to close us off, I have three application points that I want to give on how it would help us foster a uh, lifestyle that reflects the king. And the first is this, uh, seek sacrifice. So Matthew 5.29 says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members of your whole body than your whole body, uh, excuse me, for it is better for you to lose one of the members of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. The implication here is what are you willing to sacrifice in your life to guard you from sin? What are you willing to sacrifice in your life to guard you from sin? Point number two, seek accountability. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Who in your life is it okay for you to not be okay? And I think everyone needs this. Of all, all ages, everyone needs someone where it is okay to not be okay. And in my life right now, uh, I meet every Thursday morning with two guys on staff, and I and these two guys are transparently honest with one another. They see the evil in me. They see my, my flaws. And yet they encourage me towards righteousness. And yet when I tell them of my sin, they are kind in their response, and they reflect Jesus in that way. And so who in your life knows you where it is safe for you to confess your sin? And lastly, and I would say most importantly, seek scripture. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the ultimate fight against our sin is to become more like the one who defeated sin. And so to become more like Jesus, we want to know more about Jesus, and the way to do that is to study his word, 
to pull out truth from his word, to look at his character in scripture and say, I want to be more like you. And so as we grow in our walk, the hope is that we would become more and more like Jesus and represent to the world what a follower of Jesus looks like, to represent to the world someone who is broken yet restored, to represent to the world a future hope where there is no sin, where there is no pain. That is what we desire. And so we must confess our sin. We must be restored because we have a mission at hand. You see, David, he went on to be called the man after God's own heart. Despite this sin, God forgave him and he used him to make his name known. And he does the same for us. He forgives us and says, I want to use you to make my name known. This is the God who forgives, who is gracious, who is kind. I realize my need is crucial. I realize the solution is radical. But praise you, God, that your response is gentle. This is he who came down and died that we would be saved. And so to close, I have a quote by, sorry, by St. Augustine. He says, you never go away from us, yet we have difficulty in returning to you. Come, Lord, stir us up and call us back. Kindle and seize us. Be our fire and our sweetness. Let us love, let us run. Our God is gracious, and he is for his children. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for being a God who is good, who has forgiven us, who looks down on us, who, who sin against you consistently, and yet you still see us white as snow, God. You still see us as being made justified through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you for that. And in response of that truth, Lord, we, we worship you now. So Lord, as we take communion, we ask God that uh, we would remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And as we finish this morning with worship, that we would worship you for being a God who has forgiven us, who has loved us, who is gracious to us despite our sin. And we praise you that once we are saved by the life, death, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there is nothing that can pull us away from you. There is nothing we can do that would make us lose our salvation, that we are always yours, Lord. And so, Father, we pray and recognize that we will continue to sin. But, Lord, as our life continues, we pray we would be made more and more like your son, Jesus. We love you and praise you, God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.